0: You are listening to the City on a Hill sermon podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right, admit it. How many of you are guilty of one or more of those? Oh, yes you are. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Those of you listening online, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna be talking this morning about the paradox of marriage. And it truly is a paradox, isn't it? It's both beautiful and ugly. It is fulfilling and depleting. It is one of the greatest adventures you can go on and certainly one of the most challenging obstacle courses you may face. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and yet, it is the, check this out, oldest human institution in all of creation, according to the Bible. Before the church existed, before the nation of Israel existed, marriage was the first human institution, the joining together of the first man and woman to create the family. In fact, the family is so old that it predates sin. Think about that for a moment. We make it three whole chapters before things go bad for us in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world and ruins everything. But marriage happens in Genesis 1 and 2. It predates sin. It's extremely old, and it is extremely important to the heart of God. It's an institution that he created. When we think about the world that we live in, there are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises about which the Bible is totally silent on hospitals, libraries, museums, schools, all things that are fundamental to a flourishing society, and yet the Bible has virtually nothing to say about how we are to run them on a day-to-day basis. We're free to invent them, we're free to operate them, define them, redefine them, as long as we uh, live within the the sort of general principles for human living that the Bible spells out, we're able to do kind of whatever we want in those institutions. But marriage is different. We're not given a lot of freedom to reinvent or re define. Marriage is the invention of God. It comes from the heart of God. It was his idea. And he and he alone gets to say how it should be carried out. And so if you are married this morning or single and hope to marry one day, it is important that we understand what God has said about the institution of marriage if we want to be successful in our marriage. You know, um, last November, my daughter, Victoria, my middle daughter she 's eight she 'll be nine this coming November, uh, got from her Gigi for her birthday her very our own first fish tank now i don 't mean like a fish bowl, okay? I mean a tank <laughs> with like a filter and hoses everywhere and gravel at the bottom. the whole. 9 yards. She gets this for her birthday. She's sweet, probably my sweetest natured child, loves animals, loves God's creation. And so she was so excited about this gift. And Jessica and I like like good Christian parents let it sit on a shelf for about 6 months. Um <laughs> dreading the work we knew it would take to get it set up. And finally, the guilt was just too much for my bride. She couldn't handle it anymore. She took like half a day and took it to the pet store and tried to figure out how it all works and how to put it all together. And then we went as a family and we picked out Tori's first fish. She named him Moses. Um <laughs> little beta fish, little blue guy, super cute, right? Beta fish have a lot of personality, and so it was just a great, it was a great choice for her. And, uh, you know, they told us this is what you feed him, and this is what the water temperature is supposed to be, and, you know, the whole nine yards for fish. And, and so we began doing that, and we mostly followed the directions, I think, pretty well. I mean, I'm just, you know, maybe a little biased, but I, I think we did okay. We had one problem with the pump where it wasn't on for three weeks, but, I mean, other than that, he lived through that season. Um... And so it was fine, you know, we, we we did things pretty well. But over time, Moses began to get lethargic. He just wasn't his normal self. And uh, and of course, Jessica, you know, picked up on this really quickly. And she was like, "Sweetheart, I don't think so, I think something's wrong. You know, I think we're killing the fish." And and, and I said, you know, uh, I'll, I'll call the pet store and, and we'll see, we'll see what's going on. We'll see what they say. And so I called the, the fish place, and and they said, you know, beta fish are they're notoriously lazy. And and he's probably just acclimating to the tank. They're very lethargic fish, and I thought, great, that explains everything. We're doing a great job. He's just he's acclimating to the tank, and so I, I called Jess and said, hey, everything is fine. This is normal. This is how he's supposed to act we're good. We're good to go. And so, you know, time continued pushing forward. Moses continued to be more and more lethargic. I continued to do the normal guy thing where I said, everything's fine. Um, I called the professional. I got the information and I'm taking the information for what it's worth. Well, uh, what happened is uh, Victoria and her sisters had a sleepover at their cousin's house one night. And and so they went over there, and it happened to be the same weekend that Jessica had a girls weekend getaway at this Airbnb, which left me at the house by myself. And guess who decided to die when I was all by myself? I felt horrible. You know, I've been saying this whole time, it's fine, it's fine, this is normal, this is normal, and now I have Moses, and he has, you know, gone to the promised land. And so I had to figure out, first of all, how I was going to explain this to Jessica, and then I had the, you know, impossible task of telling my sweet daughter that her family fish has bit the dust. And so, um, you know, we we made it through that, but I was curious, I wanted to know what happened. So I, I took a water sample, I went back to the fish place, I came in. I said, hey, you know, I'm the guy that called. I'm here with the the water sample. And and they said, you know, you need to talk to the beta guy. And I went, the beta guy? It would have been good to talk with him six months ago. (laughs) And so he comes out. He's a real nice guy. He apologizes. You know, sorry for the loss of your fish. I'm like, it's a fish. It's fine. Um, (laughs) But he starts asking me these questions, right? So he he asked me, he says, "Um, how often are you cycling the water? And I said, what does that mean? And so he explained to me, you need to be cycling the water like every week, you know, a quarter of a tank and adding, you know, all this stuff. And I went, okay, that's cool. And he said, how often are you testing for ammonia and and pH pounds? And I said, "Uh, what does that mean? (laughs) So he gave me some test strips and he explained to me, you need to be doing this once or twice a week. You need to know that the water is safe for your fish. And then he asked, what kind of diet is your fish on? And I said, the word diet implies that there is more than just the flakes that we've been feeding him every day. And he said, yeah, yeah, you need to have bloodworms and shrimp and all these things. Apparently, you know, Moses has a whole macro balance that he needs. So, uh, okay, fine. Um, so we eventually bought another fish. Tori picked out another, another beta fish. His name's Captain America. Um, he's still alive, praise the Lord. Um, Every now and again when she's tired, she'll come in and say, you know, like, like we, we need to feed the United States. And I'm like, sweetheart, it's Captain America. Right, <laughs> Captain America. She didn't name him. That was the name of the fish when she bought him. But, but, you know, after a few moments talking to this beta expert, it became apparent to me why Moses didn't make it. We were caring for him. We were just giving him the wrong kind of care right? We, we were given bad instructions. If we had had the right instructions, Moses might still be kicking it, but we were given the wrong instructions. And, 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 and here's the reality. You, you can be as committed as possible to caring for something, and if you're giving that thing the wrong kind of care, that thing you are caring for will likely die. This is just a general life principle, right? The right the right motive, the, a good amount of care, but the wrong kind of care doesn't yield good results. It's true for your fish, it's true for your dogs and your cats, it's true for your lawn, and it is true for your marriage. So often marriages fail, not because of a lack of care, but because of the wrong kind of care because people are typically given the wrong kind of instructions from the very beginning. People form their ideas about marriage from television or movies or books or some well-intending family member like the people on the video that we watched here in the beginning. And crucially, they don't derive their ideas for marriage from the scripture. And so they work and work and work and things get worse and worse and worse until the marriage suffers eventually the same fate of poor Moses, which means it quite literally goes down the toilet. Moses was flushed. That's what I'm saying. it It was a joke. If you want a successful marriage... If you want to know how to be a successful husband or wife, we need to hear from a marriage expert, from the one who invented it, from the one who designed it. We need to hear from the Lord and and what he has to say. There's several passages in the scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments that that deal with and discuss various aspects of marriage, one of which comes from the book of Titus. If you remember uh, several uh, weeks ago now, about six weeks ago, We talked about the standards that God has for uh, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And one of those standards for the younger women had to do with marriage and the way that that she is to carry out her role as a wife. And I did not have sufficient time that morning to deal, to really unpack that particular verse. And so my promise to you was to come back on this day, the 28th, and uh, have a larger discussion about marriage, particularly on the roles of both the wife and the husband, and there is perhaps no better passage that deals with these roles than Ephesians chapter five. So, if you have your Bible, uh, turn them to Ephesians 5:22 through 33. That's our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, then come and see me after church. We will get you a hard copy. I believe we still have a couple of copies left that we can give you. Uh, Come and get one if you want one. If it's going to end up like on the back part of your car and get sunbaked over six months, then maybe leave the Bible here. But if you really want one, and we'll read it, we would love to give you one and put it in your hands. Uh, we're going to just read the passage. I'm going to let the Word of God speak for itself. Uh, just read it. It's a little bit long, but I think w- very worthwhile. And then we'll, we'll come back and just sort of pull it apart verse by verse and, and talk through what is happening here. Read it with me beginning in verse 22. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this, this passage speaks to the roles of the husband and the wife. And as you can see, just by reading it, I don't even have to explain much about it. They're different roles from one another. In other words, what God expects from the wife is different than what he expects from the husband. The roles are different. And my contention is that you could summarize these roles, each of them, with one word. If you boil these verses down, you come away with one big idea for wives and one big idea for husbands. And these big ideas drive or motivate the way that these roles are carried out. And so let's jump in. We're going to talk about these. I'm going to start with the wives, we'll get to the husbands eventually. Uh, Let's begin with the big idea for the wives. It's a really nasty word for our modern world, but we have to deal with it. It's the word submission. Submission. It's a very dicey word, I realize, for our day and time. And yet, it's a central word and a central theme of the role of the wife in the New Testament. Paul says very clearly in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. This is what he says in Titus 2.5, the verse that sort of spurred on this entire sermon this morning. Uh, he says to the younger women that they are to be submissive to their own husband. So this is a clear teaching in the New Testament. The question is, what does it mean? How does this play itself out? Now, let me say up front that a lot of damage has been done by misusing and misunderstanding this word. A lot of guys have sort of weaponized this term in order to make their wives do things that they didn't really wanna do. And men, if you fall into that category, you need to repent of that. That is not of God, that is not what the scripture calls us to. And as you're gonna see here, we're gonna talk through what this word means and critically what it does not mean to get a better and more biblical understanding of what God is calling wives to. Let's unpack it. Point number one, Let's talk about the meaning of submission. Just what does it mean? What does the word mean in and of itself? It's the Greek term hupotasso. It's it's actually a military term uh, used in extra-biblical Greek literature. It's often used to describe a soldier who submits to the leadership of an officer. So literally translated, it's a word that means to place under or to stand under. It conveys the idea of uh, of a willingness to submit to leadership that is above you. So in the context of marriage, it implies that in the marriage, there is a leadership structure. In other words, someone has to lead in the family. There's that great old saying that, you know, anything with no head is dead. Anything with two heads is a monstrosity. If, uh, if no one is leading, there is confusion. If multiple people are leading, there is often competition and chaos. So in the Christian marriage, God's word for husbands is to lead. Verse 23, Paul says, "'For the husband is the head of the wife, "'even as Christ is the head of the church, "'his body, and is himself its savior.'" God has charged the husband to be the leader. Now, with that said, we're gonna talk about this in a moment and go far more into detail about this. Leadership is not a position of privilege, it is a position of servitude and sacrifice. True leadership, men, should always be vulnerable, it should always put you at risk. It should always put you in service to and in sacrifice for those whom you are leading. Again, in the context of marriage, your wife. So the husband leads, the wife submits. Number two, submission is for every Christian. I think this is a really important concept for you to understand. We have this idea often in evangelicalism that submission is something for women. It's not for women. It is for Christians. It is used often in the New Testament, 38 times to be exact, And it is not only for wives. Here are some other ways that we find the the term or the idea of submission uh, being advanced. Number one, we're to submit to God. No one would argue with this, I don't think. Hopefully not. Uh, James 4.7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's the same term, hupotasso. Ephesians 5.24, Paul says that the church submits to Christ. That's our role as Christians, as the church, to be in submission to the lordship of Jesus. So we are to submit to God. We're to submit to governing authorities. We talked about this as well in Titus. Titus 3.1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That is talking about the church, Christians, all Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 is a big one. He says, be subject to, hupotasso, same word, Submit yourselves to, be subject to, for the Lord's sake, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, you could say president for modern vernacular, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So we're to submit ourselves to God, we're to submit ourselves to governing authorities, we're to submit ourselves to one another. So right before Ephesians 5.22, our passage this morning, starting in verse 18, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a key phrase there. Don't be filled with alcohol, be filled with the Spirit of God. What does that lead to when that happens? Verse 19, it leads to addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It leads to giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Now literally the next thing that Paul says in the Greek is wives to your own husbands. In other words, the wife's submission to her husband is actually an extension. It's an outcropping of the general submission that we are all to have for one another. He's saying that in the church, we are to submit ourselves to one another as we serve one another and sacrifice for one another, as we love one another, we're commanded to do that over and over and over again, and that wives specifically to their own husbands, a special kind of intimate submission that happens only to her husband, not to men, not to other people's husbands, to your and your alone husband. It is not something that is relegated to only women. So, so understand what Paul is saying here, we're to reject worldly things, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that will result in a robust worship as we sing and make melody to the Lord. You want to know how to, to worship better, to have a deeper worshipful life? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It will result in gratitude towards God for everything that he's done for us, and it will result in a mutual submission to one another in the church and a special kind of submission within the marriage for her wife to the husband. You've got to get it out of your head that submission is something that only women are called to do. It's for all believers. It's for all Christians. Number three, submission does not imply inferiority. Submission does not imply inferiority. Let's do some theology for a moment. It's one of my favorite things. I can make a strong case, I think a very good case, that to say that a woman is inferior because she is commanded to submit is actually to commit a Christological heresy. And here's why. Because Christ, in his incarnation, when he takes on human flesh, when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, as John says in John chapter 1, He is in submission to the Father who is in heaven, and yet we would never say that Jesus is inferior to the Father. That's heresy, according to Orthodox Christianity. We believe in one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. That's the historical Orthodox terminology, the definition that we get from Nicaea, the definition that we get even all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, but specifically fleshed out in the Nicene Creed some, I don't know, 1,800 years ago. That God exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all unique and distinct persons from one another and yet perfectly equal to one another. Now that is an important doctrine for you to grab a hold of because it's a historical, essential aspect of our faith. But beyond that, here's what it means. It means practically that you can be equal and not the same. You can be equal and not the same. This is usually where confusion begins when we talk about submission uh, outside of the church. People who typically oppose a, a more biblical definition of marriage have a hard time separating these concepts. They equate equality with sameness. They're not the same thing. Submission does not mean inferiority and equality does not mean sameness. If it does, here's what ends up happening. It means then that a, when a woman is seeking to achieve equality by achieving sameness, she is seeking to get something that she already has by something that she will never have. She is seeking to get something she already has equality. The Bible's clear about that. Women are equal to men in every manner in every measure. She's seeking to get something she already has, equality, with something that she will never have, which is sameness. Husbands and wives are equal by design, and yet they will never be the same also by design. If God only wanted men, he would have only created men, and what a hell of a world that would be, (laughs) by the way, (laughs) put me out of my misery there. If he only wanted women, he would have only created women. But God created men and women, both equally bearing his image, both different and distinct. Now, are there inequities in the world towards women in social circles and in the workplace? Absolutely there are. And we should, as Christians, be vocally in opposition to that kind of inequality in every manner that we can be. We should address that as often as possible. But that is not the same thing as a distinction in roles within marriage that are both equal but unique. Submission does not imply inferiority. Equality does not mean sameness. Number four, submission is always voluntary and never forced. So let's get a bit more technical here for a minute. We're gonna talk about language. Gotta do grammar here, everyone's favorite subject. Uh, One of my favorite subjects. Let's talk about grammar. In language, our verbs have a voice. There is a voice to verbs. In the English language specifically, verbs have the active voice and the passive voice. Uh, The active voice, uh, that means that the subject of the sentence is the one doing the action of the verb. So let me give you an example. Uh, The boy kicked the ball. The boy is the subject, he's doing the action of the verb, the kicking. By contrast, the passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. So an example of this would be, the boy was hit by the ball. The boy was hit by the ball. The boy is the subject, the action of the verb is happening to him. Two voices, the active voice and the passive voice. Now Greek adds a third voice. The Greek language is the language that the New Testament is primarily written in. It adds a third voice that we don't have in the English language, and it is called the middle voice. In the middle voice, it means that the subject is the one doing the action, but with special interest to itself, based on some benefit that it will receive in doing the action. We don't have this in English, but it is present in Greek, and particularly here in Ephesians 5.22. In fact... Every single time submission is talked about in the New Testament, it is in the middle voice. Here's the point. Submission is always voluntary. It is always done of the volition of the wife with special interest to herself. It is never compelled by another person. Crucially, it is never forced by the husband. Men, you need to hear that. Husbands are never ever told in the scripture to bring your wife under submission. When that happens, you are no longer practicing biblical submission. You're practicing worldly submission, and you need to repent. It is always of the volition of the wife. You would expect, when you read the New Testament, you would expect it actually to say, husbands rule over your wives, right? I mean, the the idea of submission implies leadership. It it implies a hierarchy structure. And so you would expect the Bible to say, wives, submit to your own husbands, and husbands, rule over your wives. That's what you you would guess maybe it would say. That's not what it says at all. What it says is, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So hear this, men. You want your wife to submit to you? Love her better. Actually love her. The moment that you begin demanding submission from her is the moment you depart from biblical submission altogether. It's no longer middle voice submission. It is no longer what Christ is calling her to. You need to repent of that if that is where you land. One last point before we get to the husbands for the wives. Number five, submission to husbands is superseded by submission to God. Submission to husbands is superseded by submission to God. Let me give you an an overall principle that you can operate off of. When submitting yourself to anything on earth requires you to violate your submission to God, the higher calling is to submit to God. This is true for any kind of submission. It's true for governing authorities. This This is where this discussion comes up a lot with regard to governing authorities. If you remember, Peter, he's proclaiming Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. He's making everyone mad. He gets thrown in prison for it in the book of Acts. And they bring him before the high priest and the Pharisees, and they say to him, Peter, we don't want to keep you in prison. We're going to let you go. Just please, for the love of God, stop talking about Jesus. Now, Peter is by biblical authority intended to submit to governing authority except that to submit to governing authority would be to no longer submit to the authority of God who calls him to proclaim the gospel. And so remember his words in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. When we come to an impasse of submitting ourselves to someone, And that submission requires us to violate our submission to Christ. We always submit to Christ. In the context of marriage, it means that wives, if the husband pulls the submission card on you or wants you to do something that violates your conscience or your obedience to Jesus, you have the right to respectfully say, no, he is not God, despite what he might think in that moment. And by the way, this includes 100% any kind of abuse. Any kind of abuse, emotional, spiritual, or physical. Submission does not mean just let the guy abuse you. What a stupid conclusion we have drawn when we end up there. There is this like maddening tendency in evangelicalism today that when a woman is being abused and not submitting to that, we put the focus on her. I'll be completely honest with you. If you come into my office... And the husband is abusing the wife and she is not submitting to you. The very last thing I am remotely interested in talking about is whether or not she's gonna submit to your stupid self. That is not the point. Of course, she's not submitting to you. You're not submitting to Christ. And you have the audacity to call her into submission when you yourself are not in submission? It makes a mockery of Christ. And you need to repent. You want to complain about someone not submitting, that you are harming or abusing. You have missed your call as a husband and as a Christian. You've missed it. You need to go back to square one and believe the gospel. You need to repent of that. There's a lot of that nonsense, and it doesn't make any sense to me. The burden of responsibility of the marriage does not fall on the woman. It falls on the man. You want her to submit to you, love her better. Quit abusing her. Quit abusing the daughter of God. Women, listen to me. You are an image bearer of God. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You are chosen by God. You are commissioned by God. You are cherished by God. And you are equal co-heirs in Christ. Submission does not mean silence, especially in the face of abuse. And if it is happening, you get help. As your pastor, I'm giving you permission. Get help. Out your stupid husband and call the police or call us. And we will walk through that with you. Yeah. We cannot talk about being the hope of the world when we're not even the hope of abused women in the church. We have missed the mark supremely. Now, with that said, submission in in an ideal marriage is central to the role of the wife in a biblical marriage. It doesn't mean that you are unequal. It is not unique to women. It is a purely voluntary act of love, not only love for Christ, but love for the husband, and it should never violate your submission to God. It is the driving force behind your role as a wife, and that's how you honor the Lord when you live it out. By contrast, The driving force of the husband is love, love. Nothing nothing controversial about this one, nothing surprising, hopefully. Love is the uh, central force of the husband's role. I would say that the brunt of responsibility for the marriage falls on the husband. As the leader of the home, you are charged first and foremost to love your wife in a radically different way than any other uh, love that she will experience in her life. It's interesting to me that when we talk about marriage, we usually hone in on this idea of submission and whether or not the woman is doing that, and the brunt of the responsibility falls on the man. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, you get approximately three verses for the woman. Everything else falls onto the man. The brunt of leadership is on your back and you love her radically in at least a few different ways. Men, get your pens out, take notes because this will help you. This will do wonders for you. Number one, your love ought to be sacrificial, a sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is without question. Let's just be honest about this. The most burdensome command for marriage there is. It doesn't get harder than this. This is an impossible command. You will never do this perfectly. You're like, how do I love my wife? Paul's like, you love her in the same way that Jesus Christ loves the church. (laughs) Okay. It doesn't get any more impossible than that. but, But here's what it means. It means that your love for her should always seek to put her first in all things. And you must be willing to give up your life if necessary. Now, I think we can agree, hopefully, the prospect of you literally giving up your life for your wife is very low. Guys typically like to think in terms of action movies, right? And I mean like mid 90s action movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger action movies. We like to think that we're going to love our wives sacrificially. In the way that when we're at the mall shopping and the gunman comes in, we like slow motion jump out in front of her, right? To intercept the bullets and protect her. And in our dying words, we confess our deep and abiding love. That's probably not going to happen. But my suspicion is that sacrificing simpler but far more practical things are going to be much more challenging for you much more difficult to put her desires before your own to go to the restaurant she wants to go to rather than the one you want to go to to watch a movie or go on a walk when the football game is on oh sacrifice you know, and we laugh, but, but seriously, loving her sacrificially means putting your desires below her desires. Now to be clear, I'm not talking about abdicating your responsibility in order to just appease her, like codependently or passively. That's not what I'm saying. You're the leader. Lead, don't follow, but lead by loving her in a manner that conveys to her that her desires and her wants and her needs are higher than yours are. You cannot be a sacrificial leader without sacrificing men. Doesn't happen. And ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you know that the man that you are married to will always cherish you by putting your needs, your desires, and your wants above his own, is it not a little bit easier to submit to that? No. No. (laughs) Who was that? Was that? Of course it was. Hey, this is church. We can be honest. I love it. I love it. Your love, men, should be sacrificial. It should always seek to put her first. Two, it should be a nurturing love. A nurturing love. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. He says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord Does the church. Again, there's a comparison between Jesus and the church and the husband and the wife. Just as Jesus cares for his body, the church, the husband is to love their wives as his own body. And he uses two words here to describe this kind of nurturing love. Number one, he says it should, it should should nourish her. There should be nourishment in it. It's a word in the Greek that means to provide food with special emphasis on growth. In other words, it it indicates the idea that food is something that is meant to sustain us and build us up and make us able, capable to carry out the tasks that we are responsible for. And this is going to shock some of you living in America. It shocked me that food serves a purpose beyond just tasting good. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that it actually like serves some real actual point in your body to sustain you, to build you up, to make you feel generally better than 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 crappy food does which we are big fans of here in America. Here's the point of this is that your love ought to nourish in the same way that good food nourishes the body. If your love for her is high quality you should expect that it builds her up. If the love you are giving her is McDonald's quality don't be surprised when she breaks down. Your love should nourish her. Second it should cherish her. This is a word in the Greek that is often used to describe a mother bird uh, as she warms her nest. There's an idea of comfort and, and longing and, and cherishing towards that which we love. Once again, there's, there's the notion of building someone up with this kind of love, physically, emotionally, spiritually. In, in other words, wives should be healthier versions of themselves as a result of marrying you. No pressure. Number third, it should be an everlasting love. Ephesians 5, 31. Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is actually a quote out of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God, for the very first time, takes the first man and woman and joins them together in marriage. This is the institution of the family being created. And Paul is quoting that here to drive home the idea that from the beginning, this has been the goal of marriage, that it would be everlasting while you're alive. He clarifies in Galatians, if if someone dies, then then you can remarry. But but the idea is that it's, it's everlasting, that it's not meant to be broken. Jesus quotes this when he talks about divorce in Mark chapter 10. When when a man leaves his father's home and joins himself together with a woman in the covenant of marriage, it is a covenant not meant to be broken. It's meant to be everlasting. Now, there are divorce clauses in the New Testament, and so if you are divorced, do not take this as judgment at all. That's not what I'm saying. There are plenty of instances where it is appropriate, but the intent of it, the heart of God, understand, is that marriage is meant to be unbroken. Jesus says in that chapter, in Mark 10, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's a a level of security, in other words, that should come from this covenant of marriage. Think about for a moment the, the level of security that we have as believers. When we talk about salvation, salvation is not something that I do. It's not a work of my own. Salvation is a work of Christ and Christ alone. Meaning there is nothing I can do to earn my salvation. There's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. There's an an incredible amount of security I have in my relationship with God. I I never wake up in the morning and think, I hope he loves me today. I hope he hasn't grown tired of me. In fact, Paul talks about this this inseparable love that, that God has for us in Romans 8, 38, and 39. He says, for I am persuaded... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, or depth, or any created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's security in that. There's beautiful, I don't have to wonder, it's, there's, I am secure in my love for God. And I think what Paul is saying here. In Ephesians 5:31 is in the same way that we are able to rest in our security for God's love for us. Let your wives rest in the security of your love for her. She shouldn't wake up and wonder if you still love her. She shouldn't. She shouldn't be confused. She shouldn't be curious as to whether or not you're still in. There should be a deep and abiding security that you're there. You're, You're committed. You're all in. There's no other distractions. It's you and you alone. That's the kind of love that men, we are called to. You love her sacrificially by putting her desires before your own. You, you should nurture her in your love by building her up. She should be a healthier version of herself as a result of marrying you. And your love should be everlasting. Never let her doubt your love for her. Now, the, the roles... For marriage. They're, they're beneficial, they're practical, right? I mean, if you, if you live these things out in sort of an ideal scenario, your life and your marriage will be better. There's no doubt about it. But the roles actually serve a bigger purpose than even that. There is some practical benefit, but there's a bigger purpose when we carry out the roles of marriage that Paul talks about in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. He's talking about marriage. Marriage is a mystery. Paul's words, not my own. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What he's saying is, if you're married, your marriage is either telling the truth or a lie about the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Wives, your submission to your husband is conveying to the world something about the way the church ought to submit to Jesus. Men, your love for your wife is conveying to the world something about the way Jesus loves us. The roles of the husband and the wife reflect the roles of Jesus and the church. The question is, on the table, will your marriage tell the truth or a lie? And only time will tell that. Now, at the Welcome, if you were here, I made the announcement that we were going to give you the opportunity to renew your vows this morning if you feel led to. Some of you have probably never heard this before. You, you've never heard this spelled out this way. And, and I think, personally, it, it is my contention that, that when I am confronted with something I've been doing wrong and I am in need of repentance, I think one of the most practical and beneficial ways of repentance is that something that is... In, in some ways public and, and sort of ceremonial and, and certainly verbal. And so I think it's actually quite helpful for those of you who are married, not out of guilt, not out of emotional manipulation, but if you feel like, you know what, I haven't been as intentional as I should be in doing this. I haven't been loving or submitting in the way that, that this was just unfolded in scripture and I wanna do that. I, I, wanna, I wanna put myself out there and do that. Then what I wanna ask you to do is with your spouse stand in this, in this room, and if there's no one here, then we'll just, we'll just awkwardly pray and go about our business, but there's at least one. So stand if you wanna join in, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read the vows that I read when I officiate weddings. And I'm gonna have you repeat these vows after me. I promise I'm not gonna be the long-winded guy that gives you like a whole sentence and you have to remember it all. It is gonna be up on the screen as well. But this is your opportunity to commit yourself to your spouse and to the Lord that you wanna do this the best you are able according to God's word. Husbands, you will go first. Grab your hand, your, the, the hands of your wife, look deeply into her eyes, and repeat after me. In the name of Jesus, I, your name, take you, your wife's name, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. Amen. Wives, would you repeat after me? In the name of Jesus, I, your name, take you, your husband's name, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. Church, would you pray For these couples. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a clear understanding of of what you call us to. And and I pray, God, that that you would would burden us with the deep desire to live obediently to you in a way that is honorable to all people, but specifically to the, the person that you have paired us up with. I thank you for these couples, for their commitment to renewal, for their commitment to one another. It will not be perfect. They will not do this perfectly, God. Give them grace, a reminder of grace and forgiveness that we so desperately need on a day-to-day basis. I pray for all those who are not married, who have suffered the heartbreak of divorce, or who have simply not married yet. I pray, God, that you would meet them right where they are, and that your Holy Spirit would bring to mind all that he desires them to know in this time. We believe that Scripture is profitable for all people. How we love you. We thank you that you call broken people into marvelous light. We love you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Super, super awesome. Yes. I want to just say again how grateful I am to serve you. Uh, I love this church. every, Every time I preach here, I'm reminded of just... How blessed I am and how incredible how incredible it is and, and what a privilege it is to be a part of, of what God is doing here next week uh, I will be here but not in the pulpit Chris will be here to talk a little bit more about um, actually Peter I think is what he is going to be dealing with peter's failures and his life and and so uh, we'll be hearing from him and then uh, September 11th we begin coffee cup faith and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that grab one of those cards and and uh, hand that to a friend or a family member. We'd love to have them in here as well. Um, God bless you. We'll see you next time.